talk about snow clearing. This week, it's still summer and warm outside, but Council really wants to talk about snow clearing. You're welcome, Mac. It's that time of year again, isn't it? You bet. I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 237. I might have jinxed it. I had an appointment to put my winter tires on my car (sighs) next Tuesday. Yep. And Mac, I canceled it and rescheduled it. So (laughs) for December at this rate, the way the temperature is going. October 31st. But if it snows on Tuesday, if there's a blizzard on Tuesday. It's your fault. This is my fault. 100%. Sorry in advance for that. This is what happens if you're too responsible and you get ahead of the game. Call on the winter gods. But of course, um, if that does happen, council will thank me because all they want to talk about this week and next is snow and ice clearing. And we'll get into that. But first, we got to pay the bills. Yes, we have an ad this week about an upcoming event on October 19th called Curbing Traffic, an evening with Chris Bruntlett. Bruntlett is a Canadian who works for the Dutch Cycling Embassy. He's written a couple of books about active transportation in various cities around the world. And in this talk, he's going to talk about the decisions that helped establish the Netherlands as a bicycle paradise. Have you ever been there, Troy, like to Amsterdam or anything? I have been to Amsterdam. The one thing I'll say about Amsterdam in terms of a bicycle paradise is, yeah, you see the pictures of the bicycle infrastructure. Yeah. The most incredible thing about uh, Amsterdam is all the stuff that's not bicycle infrastructure, but still is. All the roads that are 30 kilometers an hour and everywhere in the city is accessible by bicycle, even the ones that don't have bike lanes, which is a great experience. What I remember about Amsterdam and the bicycles is that I felt like I was at home, except that everything that was trying to run me over and and take (laughs) up all the space was a bicycle instead of a vehicle. Like you really have to watch where you're going in in Amsterdam because of all the bicycles. It was pretty good. And they'll hit you. Paradise is one word for it. They will definitely run into you. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, When I went uh, to Amsterdam, that was still, they had been struggling with a policy decision of, do you allow electric mopeds in the Mm. bike lanes? When I was cycling, sometimes you still felt a little bit like Edmonton because someone would rip past you with, with low passing distance at 60 kilometers an hour. Right. I understand that they have slightly solved that. But our tangent aside, this is about the event that's happening on October 19th. And tickets are $15 each. But uh, bonus, if you're listening to this podcast, you can use the code TAPROOT to get 10 bucks off. So in the door for 5 bucks. You can find the link to the ticket page where you can register in our show notes. Or if you search for curbing traffic and Eventbrite, it should come up in your search results. And thanks to Councillor Michael Jans, the University of Alberta, and MADE, that's Media Architecture Design Edmonton, for making it possible for us to share this with you. And now, triggering my uh, best Malcolm Gladwell, I'm going to repeat the call to action three or four times. (laughs) That's Curbing Traffic, an evening with Chris Bruntlett. Use the code TAPROOT for $10 off. That's T-A-P-R-O-O-T for $10 off. Don't forget to use the code TAPROOT for $10 off. (laughs) Well done. Well, another thing that Amsterdam is good at, in addition to bikes, is public transit. They've got a pretty great transit system over there. Uh, We don't, but the city (laughs) is endeavoring, uh, quite a transition there, Yeah. but the City of Edmonton Youth Council is endeavoring to make transit a little bit better for youth and maybe even this winter as well. There was a couple of reports that went to committee this week related to youth and transit and also transit in winter. 
One of them is amending the city's transit fare policy to make transit free for children uh, 12 and under, which is already the case, but they have to be accompanied by a fare-paying adult. This new policy amendment would make it so that children even unaccompanied by a fare-paying adult would be able to ride transit for free. Uh, administration said they anticipate that would lead to about $900,000 in lost revenue. What? We're, we're hold 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 on a second. What? We're charging kids under 12 $900,000 a year to ride transit? Troy, that's not exactly right. What administration said in their report is not that we're charging youth for this, but they say approximately 1250 passes are sold every month to students 12 and under, and they would no longer need to sell those passes. I don't know if the kids themselves are paying for that or how that works exactly, but there is some revenue considerations for making this policy change. That's a shocking number to me. And it's even more shocking because I was under the impression we already did this. Like, I know that youth were able to ride transit with a fare-paying adult, but I know other cities had gone fare free for youth without the adults and i just assumed edmonton had kept pace with that uh so this this was a bit of a shock this week to read this yeah i was i will admit i also thought don't we already do this like why is this coming up but that nuance of you have to be with an adult is what it's all about so this has to go to council full council for approval it was at committee this week and there will be a budget package in the fall supplemental operating budget adjustment uh, where they'll make this official, but it seems like a no-brainer that we should do. I do feel for council here because they, they can't not do this, right? Like this has to pass, but it's 900 grand, right? That's a million dollars that um, council's already in the hole for the fall supplementary operating budget of adjustment. So <laughs> that seems to just make the problem a little bit worse for them. Yeah. We're recording this on Thursday. This is actually an item on the agenda for executive committee, which is happening on Friday this week because of the uh, Thanksgiving long weekend. So I th I think you're right, Troy, they have to do this, but we'll find out for sure after you listen to this, whether or not committee has recommended that. There were some other youth transit things that they have already talked about, however, including a survey that was prepared by the City of Edmonton Youth Council, uh, they surveyed young people about concerns related to the transit system, and they heard a lot of things about routes and timing, payment procedure and affordability, and comfort and security. You know, all the things that any transit rider would have concerns about, I think it's fair to say. I sometimes think that the youth see our city in a different way. Of course, you know, if you're half the height of an adult, you may have a different perspective. I think on transit, the youth have the same perspective as everyone else. It would be nice if it didn't suck. Yeah. Full stop. <laughs> the number that really stood out to me, just 8% believed that ETS was handling frequency well. Because that's <laughs> certainly the experience I most often have, is like, how come there hasn't been a bus yet? <laughs> this is an example of a situation where youth will actually see the transit system differently because you or I, adults who are making choices in our life, can live centrally where frequency is less sure. of an issue on transit. Uh, but I mean, just statistically, where families are in the city of Edmonton and where youth are going to be because of families is suburbia, the places least served by transit. So I can actually see a case where a youth that, you know, can't drive and can't choose where they live because they're 12, uh, they would be uh, actually disproportionately affected by this and sort of held captive by it. That's one thing we often miss when we talk about 
you chose to live in the suburbs. You made your bed, sleep in it. Well, the kids didn't quite make their bed. They they might make it after their mom yells at them, but they didn't choose where the bed was that they were making. Right, exactly. And that also connects to another report that was uh, before committee this week related to transit. So Edmonton has about 5,000 bus stops. According to ETS, half of them have covered shelters. I don't know how equitable those shelters are distributed around the city. So if you are a youth who's stuck out in the burbs and you have poor frequency, you might have to wait for the bus without any kind of shelter. And so one of the recommendations raised in that youth survey was about comfort. And another report that went to committee was from the Edmonton Transit System Advisory Board, which recommended we should have more shelters, both more straight up shelters like we have now, but also because we're a winter city, more heated shelters. And this comes with a dueling report that also talked about shelter damage in the city of Edmonton, where basically half the shelters in the city of Edmonton had damage uh, to the tune of basically half a million dollars in repairs last year, uh, which is an absurdly high number. And this is, you know, the typical damage where you see a shelter smashed glass on the ground, a pile of rubble where someone swung a bat or some such. Yeah, so this is this is glass panels, like almost half a million dollars just in glass panels. So it's not maybe particularly surprising that Carrie Houghton McDonald, who we've had on the show before, the branch manager for ETS, said she has concerns about heated bus shelters because they're going to be more expensive and the likelihood of vandalism, you know, could really bump up that cost of maintenance. And of course, the no-brainer solution that everyone tends to propose for the smashing of glass shelters is, well, why don't you use bully proof plexiglass or something like that. <laughs> and Carrie Houghton McDonald also said, yeah, that's not a great idea because you can light those on fire, which is <laughs> generally worse for everyone involved. It's like the garbage cans, right? I mean, there's been so many garbage cans around where, where I am downtown, Troy, that have melted. Like people go around setting them on fire because they have these liners or these uh, things around the can, which are some sort of plastic. And they just they just, they just melt, right? So yes, uh, probably not a good idea to create more easily meltable surfaces out there for uh, vandals to look at. Okay, so that was a whole slew of reports that have gone to council. What is council doing with all of this information? Uh, well, with the youth transit survey one, they basically just received that for information. So presumably the input there will be incorporated by ETS into their planning. And indeed, ET administration has already said that they have several new and enhanced initiatives underway to support younger riders, including increasing off-peak service frequency, enhancing bike connectivity, rolling out the ARC cards to youth, and then also a planned youth fare reduction in 2025. So that's what happened with the youth report. With the Edmonton Transit System Advisory Board report, we got a motion from the mayor, but not about transit so much as about snow control. Oh, hooray. It's your favorite topic. Let's jump right into that. I'm sure let's spend the whole episode on that. <laughs> uh, that'll that'll make you stoked, I'm sure. Uh, what was this motion from the mayor on snow and ice control? Well, committee heard there's a projected drop in snow clearing service this winter. And the city administration is basically saying it could take up to 22 days to manually clear bus stops, paths, <laughs> and other public amenities, whereas last year, it only took 13 days. 13 days is still really high, just FYI. Yeah, it's still a long time. This is, of course, because council previously took money away from this, and so the mayor's motion to answer your question was, 
let's put $5 million back into snow and ice clearing. And this would come from the LRT reserve. So there would be an exemption here on a one-time basis to use funds from that reserve to put that into the snow and ice control program. As you point out, not to make this that much better, but to still take 13 days. Why the jump from 13 to 22? It's because last year, city council dumped a bunch of one-time funding into snow and ice control to just you know, fix this problem for this year so that we can develop a long-term solution for subsequent years. And Mac, uh, we're rolling into winter and I'm not seeing the long-term solution that we were supposed to have developed. No, it looks like we're just redoing decisions that, uh, that, that they made previously. You could say we are spinning our wheels. Oh, nicely done. It's not winter yet, as you pointed out off the top. Maybe it will come with your uh, tire change schedule here. But I presume we're going to hear much more about snow and ice control before winter is over. Yeah, of course, the last time we talked about snow and ice control, counselors like uh, Councillor Paquette had said, you know, Edmontonians would be shocked to realize the cost of snow clearing service levels that they desire. And it would be the tune of almost double our entire snow clearing budget to get the service level that Edmontonians typically want for the area of city that we have, which continues, I'll remind all our listeners, to grow. Uh, Sprawl, despite all our policies and despite all our great city plans, just the approved areas that are we're going to grow in the next 10 years boggles the mind in terms of sheer numbers of physical space. And all of those will need to be cleared and all of those will need to be maintained. I know you'll remember in past years, one of the big marquee items that caused a bunch of consternation at council was the community ice and sand buckets. So these are the little community league sand buckets that, you know, are distributed around the city and you can go spread some sand on your sidewalk to make it safe to walk around. Previously, as a cost-saving measure, administration tried to reduce substantially the quantity of those boxes, closing down community stations. And the public outcry and council pushback probably said, no, 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 we're keeping all this. We've talked quite at length about these sand buckets. Mac, I saw a release from the city this week just setting expectations. This next year, we're going to still have the full complement of 700 sand boxes around the city. But administration is saying, okay, but the year after that, in the 24-25 year, we're going to reduce that by about 600 and there's going to be 100 centrally located sandboxes. And if you don't, it's, it's a very like speak now or forever hold your peace moment. They're getting in front of the ball this time. Yeah, it, this is a pretty incredible release. When I first saw it, I thought like you, okay, they're getting ahead of the ball. We have about 770 of these sandboxes currently for the upcoming winter season. We're still going to have 700. I'm like, ah, oh, they're easing us into this, right? We've just lost 70. Then to go from that to just 100 centralized sandboxes, that's quite the change. At least we're getting some notice, as you point out. But I think people are going to be pretty upset by that change. Yeah, and the city goes to great lengths to say that these will all be centrally located and do some analysis to make sure that, you know, people are still able to access these. But when I was reading it, it felt a lot like the city's understanding of 15-minute cities, where it meant 15 minutes by car. Yeah. If it's at the eco station that's 20 blocks away, that may be close to me, I guess, but that's not something that I can walk to and fill a bucket in a blizzard scenario if I don't have a car. A lot of this feels like what we heard a couple of weeks ago with the city sort of like grossly misunderstanding what GBA plus analysis means. If you'll recall when we were discussing illegal parking lots downtown and the city recommending not 
taking any action against illegal parking lots downtown. Their GBA plus analysis was that parking and its availability can affect marginalized individuals and basically said, if we close down illegal parking lots, people in wheelchairs won't be able to function in our downtown, which is just like very funny (laughs) in sort of just like comedy writing. Yeah. But when this is our city's official position on how we make our city accessible to those with disabilities, it's actually less funny and more completely galling. I imagine that same quality of GBA plus analysis is what's being used to say, yeah, 100 is fine. <laughs> the city did say that their decision was informed by all of the public engagement that they did on this issue. They did a variety of things, surveys and focus groups and workshops and all that kind of stuff. They gave four options to people. They could discontinue the sandbox program, reduce and centralize sandboxes, keep the status quo, or increase the number of sandboxes. And we talked about this on the show previously. The, the two sort of neck and neck most popular options were reduce and centralize or status quo, but pretty equivalent. The least popular option was discontinue community sandboxes, followed by increased sandboxes. So I suppose they're looking at this and saying, well, the one with the highest agrees was centralize. But it's not like it was a runaway option. Status quo actually is what most people seem to want. They didn't want to increase it. They didn't want to get rid of it. Status quo is one of the options. It's quite different to go from that to we're going to get rid of 600 of these things. Maybe we'll see when they actually release the physical plans and the map of exactly how they're going to do this. But... You know, there's there's a middle ground, right? If you're centralizing and reducing, you don't have to reduce by, pardon my math here, seven hundred percent. Like, right? There's there's a there's a step you can take. You know, there's there's an incremental way to do this. The city asked explicitly, "What is your most preferred choice?" Thirty five percent of people said status quo. That was the the highest percentage, followed by reduce and centralize at 33%. Now, as you say, maybe there's a bit of nuance in terms of what people understood that meant. Maybe, you know, reduce and centralize, they were thinking, well, we have 700, we'll end up with 500 or, or 400. It's just, it's quite a jump to go to 100. To connect this back to snow and ice clearing, this option that the city presented people with to reduce and centralize, they said could save about $800,000, which <laughs> would be used for other snow and ice control services. I don't know that $800,000 buys us a ton for snow clearing, given the size of that budget, but I guess every little bit helps. Also, $800,000 is less than the amount that council just lost by giving kids free transit passes. <laughs> you know, presumptively, we're recording before they've actually done it, but sure, I'd wager my podcaster card on that, which, in fact, Mac, uh, speaking of my podcaster card, I've lost that on the Valley Line LRT prediction. I said it would be open by FolkFest. Big news this week. Testing is done. TransEd has said, we have completed testing. Now, the train isn't open. We're not on it yet. So I don't know for certain if this is TransEd has said they're finished testing in the same way that Thales said they finished testing the Metro Line <laughs> and we didn't ride it for three years. But according to the consortium, they're basically ready, ready for independent certification work to be finalized and for the train to just start. This is one of those announcements that's like, this is this is a nothing burger, right? Like, what does this actually mean? So this independent certification work is ongoing. It was already underway. They also said they have to do some maintenance in the coming days, which is mildly 
concerning, maybe? Like, why are we already doing maintenance? The maintenance that I saw mentioned was removing cable from conduit, which didn't we just do 140 <laughs> kilometers of that? Exactly. It's a bit it's a bit mind-boggling. Do they still have obviously time in the calendar technically until fall is over? So, they've said fall, they've got till nearly Christmas to hit that target still. They still have not given a date. Given that they said they're done, it's weird to me that there's no date or no timeline being given. Perhaps once again they've just learned that giving a date is bad juju. It Jinx is the thing atop the place and they, they don't want to do it. <laughs> or charitably, maybe the certifiers, you know, haven't given them any indication about how long their work is going to take. But soon, trademark. So too will West Valley Line LRT construction be soon completed on uh, Stony Plain Road. The businesses, of course, we talked about this last week, are severely impacted by the construction that has been ongoing for what seems like forever in front of their businesses, closing down the roads and sidewalks. City Council has approved a motion to explore some options for financial relief for those businesses. But Mac, honestly, I don't think that's going to be required because the city made a website. <laughs> Problem solved. The Rally for the Road website, they built in collaboration with the Stony Plain Road Business Improvement Area, the BIA over there. $9,000 is what the city provided for this website. $9,000 for this website. It's a, it's a page, Troy. It's, it's a web page with like a frame at the top and a weird scroll. Anyway, I am completely unconvinced that anyone is going to go to this website and that it will do anything to help those businesses. But I suppose it's a thing that the city can say they did to try to support those businesses. Yeah, so basically the site Rally for the Road at uh, stoneplainroad.com is essentially a map of businesses along the road. I was going to say sort of like Google Maps, except it is in fact just Google Maps. It is an embedded <laughs> Google Map with pins. I don't know if they know this, but Google does provide a functionality where you can find businesses in a place. It's called Google Maps. <laughs> they have construction news on this page. They have notices and things like that. You can sign up for project updates and all this kind of stuff. I just is this what we needed to get people to those businesses? Was the problem that there wasn't a website for them to go to? I don't think so. And if I was a business owner in the area, I would just feel kind of feel like, well, okay, thank you, city, for acknowledging that there's some impact here. But I'm not sure how this action actually does anything to help. Well, and I was actually quite disappointed because when this was announced and, you know, hearing the name Rally for the Road, I thought what was happening was like a cash mob type thing, right? It mm. was like a, an event. They'd have some food trucks there. And the goal is let's get tens of thousands of people physically in the space buying on this day. Yeah. Uh, but that's not what's happening. It is just a website. Well, maybe they'll listen to this, Troy, and take your idea and run with it. Because that would be more effective to actually get people into the area. Yeah. You're named Rally for the Road. Like, your name is purpose-built for this <laughs> purpose. Hopefully, this was in the plan all along, and we're just, you know, jumping the gun here. But if it's not, it, I think the $9,000 just given to a couple businesses would have gone further. Yeah, missed opportunity. Mac, after 237 episodes, sometimes I still really struggle with the transitions. So we're going a hard transition into this week, Post Media published their semi-regular article about city councilor voting blocks. Uh, this was some reporting that the Edmonton Journal has done showing that um, allegedly Mayor Amarjeet Sohi and councilors Tang, Nak, Wright, Paquette, and Salvador are the 
dominant voting block on Edmonton City Council, saying that they voted more than 75% of the time and were on the winning side of the votes more than 84% of the time. And Mac, when I read this, I had a specific reaction and I bet all the money in my pockets against all the money in your pockets that you had a very similar reaction to me. And what was your reaction, Troy? My reaction was... I'm sure glad I pay for a Taproot membership and not a post-media <laughs> subscription. Oh, why, thank you. Yeah, I mean, this kind of information is like make some pretty charts. And what they did here is they analyzed the open data catalog and removed, you know, all of the unanimous votes. and Which I'll add is almost all of them. Yeah, significant, right? That's the majority of them. But this doesn't, I don't think, provide much in the way of useful information is what I thought. Anyone can just pay attention to any city council coverage and intuitively understand that councillors Principe and Rice vote together the vast majority of the time and are on the losing side the majority of the time, for example. The voting block thing is, is I think, a lot less interesting without the context of the issues. I think you've pointed out on the show before, one of the interesting things about municipal politics is that you get people that agree on some things that vehemently disagree on other things. It would be interesting to know how many of those items that they voted on, you know, how contentious were they? What what kinds of issues were they in agreement on? How many of those issues were they voted together and were on the winning side was, you know, a 7-6 versus a you know, 10 to 3 or 11 to 2, because I imagine there's a fair number of those in there. And that's not really a voting block. One of the things that you specifically mentioned, anyone who watches a city council meeting can reasonably intuit that Principe and Rice are basically the conservative voting block with occasionally Cartmel and Hamilton joining mm-hmm. in on the fringes. That's a something that it takes watching half a city council meeting to know in your heart. And yet this article actually says that the strongest correlation between any two council members is Salvador and Stevenson. Sure, I can say they agree. They're both urban planning and background. They're both young women. Like there's, there, there's correlation there. That's not the strongest correlation. And the thing that this is missing is an understanding of Edmonton City Council at all. Uh, you can't do this type of analysis on Edmonton City Council because procedurally it prohibits such analysis. Something like voting blocks at the federal level where bills are drafted and then there's an up-down vote in the House. Yeah, you can do voting blocks on that. You can establish voting records and see what people support and not support. Mm -hmm. But at Edmonton City Council, first, most of the material work is done without even a vote, right? It'll be a motion at committee Mm -hmm. to refer back to administration. By the time the vote has actually come to city council, all the things that someone foreseeably would have voted on has been flagged or memoed or otherwise noticed by a councillor. And even further, you take something like the police funding formula debate. Well, there was a stack of motions, right? That, you know, we choose this number instead of this number, or we choose this period instead of this period, like sort of procedural motions. And councillors have to vote for or against that, knowing what motions are coming further down the line so that they don't supersede their own motion that they want to make. Like, there's a lot of procedural gunk that gets captured in the votes that makes this kind of analysis, I would say, worse than useless actively harmful. I would much rather they pay someone to watch three city council meetings and just write about it. It doesn't take long to intuit this, but someone who doesn't watch city council meetings, they won't have that color commentary. That's something that 
Graham Thompson or Paula Simons would have written about back in the day. And just we don't see that coverage anymore. All right. Troy, usually you're the one who does the transitions, but I'm going to try this on here. One of the things this does not capture is the volleying back and forth between counselors. <laughs> oh, God. There's a reason you don't do the transitions, Mac. <laughs> oh, it hurts. Uh, there was a story this week about the Savile Tennis Center opening in Edmonton with year-round courts, and I know you are or were a lover of tennis. And so I had to get your thoughts on this. So the news here is that the U of A has opened a new year-round tennis facility, has six courts in an air-supported bubble, which is really interesting. So from September to May, it'll be open to the public on a pay-and-play system. And this isn't the first air-supported bubble in the city. Uh, it is the first for tennis, but, you know, in the south of Edmonton, there's that soccer mm. arena, rink, whatever you call pitch. I think it's called a pitch. Um, <laughs> well done. You got there, there. There's the soccer facility that uh, inflates in a, like, little bubble so you can have indoor soccer at the winter times of the year. And Mac, yes, during the pandemic, I was a fighter for tennis justice when the city closed tennis courts because I like my free tennis courts. And Mac free, these tennis courts are not. Mm. Uh, during the summer months, these are going to be outdoor courts that are members only. And I don't even want to fathom how much a Seville membership costs. It's very high. In the winter, they will be pay to play and it'll be $40 per hour. Is that a lot? I don't know anything about tennis rates. Like, is that put that into context for us? It's not that much for tennis, honestly. It's about par for the course for tennis. And Mac, this is why... I no longer fight for the justice of tennis <laughs> because it's a rich man's game. I have transitioned to pickleball. It has all the joy of tennis. Plus, you can play it with your 90-year-old grandma. Yeah. She'll probably beat you at it just because demographics of pickleball. But you can play it in a gym. You can play it anywhere. It's a smaller space. It's got portable nets. And it's an accessible sport in a way that tennis quite isn't. Tennis, not only are these expensive tennis clubs they're exclusive right there's a dress mm -hmm. code uh it feels a lot like going to a country club for golf and mac i'm not about that i want my sports to have a brined vegetable in their name and pickleball <laughs> it's it's hitting all those notes for me right now pickleball's where it's at well let's uh go ahead and maybe transition into volleying a few jokes back and forth in the rapid fire segment a downtown sidewalk had an emergency closure this week after a slab of concrete facade fell from a building onto the sidewalk below there were no reported injuries however as is standard practice when an unexpected piece of concrete is found transit has decided to delay valley line opening by three more years a new directive issued by AHS on October 11th would allow zone leadership to require masks of staff, patients, and visitors in acute care settings as the best summer ever winds to a close and COVID-19 numbers continue to rise. The policy is designed to best reflect local areas having the most intimate knowledge of their caseload and risk and giving them the tools to manage that risk accordingly. The UCP government was quick to remind the province that any municipality thinking about requiring masks based on their local context will be legislated out of existence before they manage to get a bylaw to first reading. For the final joke of the episode, eight to one. See you next season. Speaking Municipally is, of course, a uh, publication of Taproot Edmonton, as is The Pulse. We're going to tell you about The Pulse. It's Taproot's daily news briefing. It tells you everything you need to know about Edmonton each weekday morning. It's right to your email inbox. Convenient, easy peasy. And you don't need to do 
any actions to get it. It comes to you just like a paper boy would throw that paper at your door. You get a whack in the morning. So to your digital phone, go beep boop. And then it's right there in your inbox. You can subscribe for free at taprootedmonton.ca. Well, this is the last one before the big meeting. That's on October 16th. Mac, I am taking a vacation day on October 16th, and I'm not going to city council. I'm going out of the city. I am not going to watch that meeting, but I probably will watch the second and third meeting that it will overflow into. Yeah. The last I heard, it was 89 speakers have already registered. So that's going to be a long day for our counselors. And I think we'll tell you all about it next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.